Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now, on to the show. You default are... Working on a newsletter that you've been doing for some time. It's a kind of, how would you describe it? I would describe it as a variety advice type newsletter, but you tell us about what is defaultfriend.substack.com. Sure. It started off as an events newsletter, but when Corona happened, I pivoted to advice and yeah, it's just whatever questions I get. So people sometimes are very detailed. So it's a very traditional advice column. Other times people are really, I think, asking me for my opinion on wider topics. And they'll occasionally frame it with a real life issue. So yeah, it's just more than advice, really. I feel like I'm giving people questions to ask about whatever issue they come to me with. And then hopefully Mm -hmm. that's helpful. And what would you say are the main themes that arise throughout your newsletter? I definitely get a lot of dating questions Mm -hmm. and a lot of questions about feeling lonely. I've gotten maybe two or three different iterations on, I feel like nobody likes me and I don't know how to manage it. And then all sorts of dating questions. How do you date if you want more than five kids? Or how do you date in the Bay Area? Or how do you date in the post-COVID world? People love to ask me about dating. And is there some reason related to how you frame it or how you communicate or how your brand is perceived that leads people to write in about those topics in particular? Or do you think that it's just because there's such strong demand for that type of I think there's three different reasons. I think, first of all, people are really hungry to talk about their dating life. And I think a lot of people feel really confused. And I I hope my approach is non-judgmental. People who are like, they want more than five kids feel comfortable asking me questions. And people who are poly also feel comfortable asking me questions. So that's the first reason. The second reason is I gained, or I guess the second and third reasons, I gained most of my followers through an American Mind piece I wrote about Bumble. And Mm. the other big follower grabber was I've dated two Twitter personalities. So people know me as ex-girlfriend. And I think part of that like (laughs) colors their, like me and my own dating life is already on their mind because that's how they found me. So I think for some reason that makes people feel more comfortable asking me questions about their romantic life. Okay. So I think you need to tell us the two Twitter personalities. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is smaller, and he has much fewer followers, but the people who know him really know who he is. He's Can a rationalist. Yeah, he's a rationalist named Will Newsom. He's Will doing things on Twitter. And yeah, if you're in rationalist circles at all, you know him as this chaotic guy who I think he's banned from Yudkowsky's house or something. And always, he's a very elfish kind of dude and <laughs> carries himself that way online and off. And then How the did other he get person- kicked out of Yudkowsky's house? I think he was just harassing him too much online. Really? (laughs) He got banned for just being a cyberbully. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And the other one is Robert Mariani. I we actually lived together for a little bit. So I like I siphoned off some of his followers. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I was on his bio very briefly. So 
yeah, people know me from that. And so did you meet both of these boyfriends through Twitter? Will, yeah, and Rob also. Yes and no, they came through recommendations uh, from other people. I'm pretty sure Razib Khan told me that I would really like Rob. And then from there, Rob started talking to me. Okay, interesting. So it's no wonder that you've become an authority on the internet and dating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That makes makes sense to me. (laughs) I wouldn't quite frame it like that, but certainly I think I'm pretty open about what's going on in my life. And I think whenever you're open about something that's going on in your own life, people feel comfortable sharing what's going on in theirs. I don't know if dating two Twitter nerds necessarily makes me an authority, but it definitely makes me perhaps someone who doesn't have a space to be judgmental. (laughs) Yeah, I think the default brand, I'm sorry, yeah, the default friend brand basically evokes a kind of warm, welcoming internet personality that makes the boundary between real life and the internet feel a little bit fluid and maybe weaker than it would be. So that might be why maybe people feel more comfortable coming to you with personal questions right off the bat, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And I DMs open. I try not to be mean to people on the TL. Sometimes I I think I more recently have been a little bit snarkier, but yeah, I try to be very, I try to be kind and hopefully I am most of the time. Right on. And I think the other thing that's interesting about you and your internet persona is that you seem to be pretty well networked in tech circles, Silicon Valley circles, VC circles. And yet you yourself, from what I understand, you don't have a technical background. So I think that's interesting. I think your background is in copywriting primarily. That's the kind of path that you took into the sort of business world. Is Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I've definitely worked for tech companies. I work for a tech company right now, but I, yeah, I'm not a tech person. I don't know how to code. I don't think I'm particularly knowledgeable about it. But yeah, I'm pretty deep into tech Twitter. So that's interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I suspect there are a lot of people out there maybe listening to this podcast who are maybe going to high school or college, or they just got out of college or something in Omaha, Nebraska, and they are most interested in some of the debates and topics that are popular in, let's say, Silicon Valley or just tech Twitter in general. And that's where they want to start moving and communicating and developing ideas and and hopefully developing projects or careers or whatever. But a lot of people feel like if they don't know how to code, or even if they do know how to code, but they're not excellent at coding, they just feel like that whole world is closed off to them. A lot of people have this idea that you need to be a great coder to be able to break into sort of the tech culture in general. And so you're basically someone who has done that quite well, but without a kind of coding background. So what would you tell the young person in Omaha, Nebraska, if they were super keen on uh, networking into tech circles and building some kind of career and social life in those worlds? Well, it depends on what they want to do. I definitely think it's never too late to code. I remember being 17 and thinking it was too late. And I've definitely tried. I didn't end up pursuing it because it's just not the way my mind works. I do think that tech really needs people who are empathetic to STEM folks aren't necessarily the engineers. I think it's probably good for product managers, for example, to have a coding background. But there's plenty of other jobs like human resources roles, roles in marketing. And with those kinds of jobs, while you probably should know what it's like to be an engineer, I think it's more important to know how to communicate with people who are more technical, which is a totally different skill set than actually being technical. 
Okay, interesting. So maybe double click on that. How do you do that? Let's say you know you don't want to be a coder. That's just not for you. But maybe you are a good writer and you're like, yeah, I want to find my way through these tech circles. I want to be like default friend. And I want to be like dating super cool tech cuties and edgelords and chaotic <laughs> young, handsome young men. And I'm going to I'm going to make my way through that path. Where do you start? What's a tip? What, what do you do? I find that people in tech don't, they aren't necessarily direct themselves, but they appreciate direct communication. So especially in the workplace, say what you mean, be be upfront more than in, in any industry I've been in. I also think that it's, it's healthy to criticize tech culture and maybe certain things about certain products. They're used to people thinking that it's a lot of fluff and a lot of superficiality. So understanding how hard it is to be a founder and how hard it is to be an engineer and that it's really unique from other industries in a lot of way, ways, I think goes a long way. People are so used to people from the outside looking at tech as like, everyone's rich and they're just getting money from VCs for doing nothing. And it's just so easy to thrive there if you're if you look a certain way or if you're maybe just a 20-year-old kid with some ambition. And it's really not true. There's these stories of runaway success and People have sort of hustled their way into it without much substance. I've seen that firsthand. But for most people, it's a very difficult life. And a lot of people are doing it because they love it. So this sort of negativity that comes in with people who have no experience with it is super insulting. And I think ironically, people think they can break into the tech world by critiquing it in ways that doesn't really resonate with people who are on the inside. That sounds astute, both of those points. So basically, the two points are the one is to be super to the point and frank and efficient. And that is in a lot of industries seen as rude or aggressive, but in tech, it's actually quite valued and appreciated. I think that's a good point. I'm not super in the tech world, but I do have some colleagues in those worlds. And I, I can definitely appreciate what you're saying. That sounds that's that rings true to me. And the second point you're saying is don't have this kind of fluffy, naive, idealistic kind of attitude towards it where the super successful people in tech just got lucky and they have it really easy, but appreciate and and show that you appreciate that. No, actually, even the people who are killing it and making tons of money with massive projects, those people hustle like crazy. They work super hard. And you're saying to basically show appreciation for that and that will be recognized and, and, and valued. I think so. And I think that the last thing is, and this was an eye opener for me, I started in entertainment and I started in New York. And I also was a little bit in the fashion world. And I find that, at least in my experience in New York, you can't wait to be 30. You really, you earn your stripes by eating dirt and getting coffee and making $7 an hour and you have six other jobs to sustain your your Condé Nast assistant job. And it's a badge of honor when you eventually get the good job that pays real money and you really work up. But in tech, I find that you can be a 15-year-old kid, but if you believe in yourself and you're really going out there and grabbing it, people will respect you. And in fact, I think I think this is a stereotype that's true. There is an emphasis placed on younger people. And you don't have to hustle in quite the same way you do on the East Coast or in, say, entertainment or fashion or, or publishing. I think Uncanny Valley, actually, if anyone read that book, it's a memoir about someone who moves from publishing to Silicon Valley, does a really nice job of summing that up. The way you earn respect is by building and by doing and by promoting your own work. Whereas 
the way you earn respect in other fields is by being an assistant, by getting coffee. And I think both have value. You learn skills in both situations. But if anyone's debating doing one over the other, I would say go to Silicon Valley first and then go to these places where it's more about slowly working up a hierarchy because it's it you'll probably move a lot quicker in tech than you would in something like entertainment. Yeah, that's that sounds astute also. Now remind me how old are you again? This is a secret, but I'm Oh, okay, yeah. no, that's fine. That's fine. You can leave it at that or give us a range if you feel like it, but I, you don't I, have to. I know I'll give a range. I like to <laughs> I like to be able to fluidly move between but I I am a millennial and I'm not super young, but I'm not super old either. Okay, fair enough. Cool. I feel like I might know privately, but I forget. I, I think can't keep you, track of stuff. Yeah, you probably do know. <laughs> yeah, I can never keep track of things. So you've been really all over the place. You've done different things. I remember that when you made your first appearance on this podcast more than a year ago, I believe uh, you were working on a film and that was your hustle. So, you, and you mentioned just now that you spent time in New York and you did fashion and you did film and all these different types of things. And then you were on the West Coast and worked in tech and copywriting. And so do you look back on your experience hopping around all these different industries? Do you look back on that and you're, that was fun and cool. And I'm glad that I've had this very Fox-like career path? Or do you look back on that and wish that you invested more in a particular domain? How do you see that? I think I'd always ask questions if I didn't start by trying to pursue entertainment. I I worked in TV. I got super lucky when I graduated college. I I got a staff job at a television network, which is really hard to do. I I don't think it was the right lifestyle for me. But I think I would have always asked myself, should I have tried harder to, to live that life? And I feel like really blessed that I got to, I went to film school, I lived that dream. I, I don't think I really have the right personality for it, but I'll never have to ask that question. I think my biggest fear is being 40 years old and being like, I didn't explore everything I explored. And now I don't know if I missed something. Now I know for sure I missed nothing. I, I gave, yeah. gave it a college try. You know? That's cool. I, I, I respect that. And that definitely resonates with me too. Awesome. Now, I'm curious, since you did work in copywriting, can I ask you a question or two about that? Yeah, sure. I'm just curious if you have any particular tips or heuristics when it comes to copywriting and specifically for the internet, for those of us who are very active on Twitter or very active on blogs or with newsletters, what do you see as the kind of biggest, most important low-hanging fruit when it comes to copywriting knowledge and skills? Consistency, definitely. And this is something that I myself don't even do. But if you want to quickly grow your Twitter brand, and again, I'm convinced this is why it's been hard for me to really grow mine, you have to pick a lane pretty much. Know know who your audience is, speak to the same people every time. I think you mentioned this yourself, actually, when you're talking about Paul Scalis. He says the same thing over and over again, but that's the (laughs) trick. That's how you grow an audience. You can say the same thing, even the same way, infinitely, and it's always going to touch a new person. So it's it's fine. That's how you that's how you scale. Okay, good point. I think that's true. The only drawback is it gets boring and you feel like a, a drone. And that's why people like you and me don't do that. But you're right. We, we sacrifice growth in some sense. Yeah, I think I don't even know what lane I pick. I gun to my head. I had to choose because I don't I feel like I'm not I'm certainly not conservative. So I can't really espouse things in that kind of zone. I, the way like the progressive audience isn't going to want what I'm selling either. (laughs) Not really a rationalist. It's, I don't really, I I can't categorize myself. So I don't expect other people to be able to categorize me either. Although you've written in the American mind. So a lot of people probably peg you as conservative, right? Yeah, this is, I don't know if 
I'm sure no one who works there will hear this, but if you read that piece, it's it's you had to label it as anything. It's a leftist piece. I don't I, I identify that way either, but it's really not a conservative article, even socially. Mm-hmm. I remember I did read it, I, and I remember exactly what you mean. Yeah, you. It was all. It was. It could be read as a, almost like a, a social justice argument. Do you want to recapitulate it? Yeah, I guess now that I'm about to sum it up, I guess I understand why people would read it as conservative. My basic point was that we've told women that they're empowered by being able to have infinite sexual partners without an exit strategy. So really, it's you're teaching them how to sell themselves within a narrow window of time, but that window closes. And then once it's closed, you're alone. This is a nice segue to my next question, which is, this is a question for your advice column. All right, default. Sure. Let's say hypothetically, I am an active star on OnlyFans. All right. I'm making a ton of money. I'm crushing it. I'm starting to think about wanting to be married and I'm finding it's challenging to find a good man who I could really see myself with. And some men, they go so far as to, they have the nerve to ask that I quit doing OnlyFans just to get married to them. So I don't know what to do. What should I do, default? Is your name Ayla? (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. It's purely purely hypothetical. I'm not subtweeting anyone whatsoever. This is purely for my own personal interest. So throwing because my the assumptions I would bring in if this was for Ayla would be totally different than a, a separate person with almost the same story real quick you know what actually let's just talk about Ayla's tweet because obviously I was in a friendly joking way subtweeting Ayla sure. I have nothing I have nothing against Ayla she's done the podcast I consider her an internet friend of mine I think she's funny and weird and very wild and I like wild people I have nothing against her we yeah, disagree on yeah no not at all not at all. Yeah, we disagree on like some things for sure, but she's cool and mature and likes to disagree about, likes to have intense, honest, rational discussion. So that's all good. So yes, I was just somewhat jestingly referring to her. And so you can answer both in response to the discussions that she's been creating on Twitter around that and that I've participated in, or you can go in a more general way and abstract away from individual personalities involved, whatever you want. Sure. I think there's two ways this can go. With so I guess just for forgetting Ayla, I think there's definitely a type of man who is fine with a, a girlfriend who, you know, even up to and including escorting. And I don't think these men are necessarily low quality men. And by low quality, perhaps not very intelligent, not high earners. I think these people come in all shapes and sizes and income levels. And we have some kind of amnesia that these people exist. I find that women who are modifying themselves sexually are often the rejectors more than they are the rejected. And what the problem might be is looking for a man who doesn't exist rather than not having a selection at all. I was talking to another friend about this earlier today, and it was, I think of it, like to give an analogy, it's let's say you want to date a libertarian scientist, but the only men who like you are Democrats who are artists, architects, and professors. And in this in this group, you have people of all intelligence levels, all income levels. Some of them are sleazeballs, some of them aren't, but you don't want those people. You want the libertarian scientist, but you have no way of accessing that person. And perhaps how you envision that person isn't even real. And I think that's the 
the problem with Ayla. I think she's looking for a specific person and it's not her profession that's making it difficult for her. I think that it's just, it's going to be hard for her no matter what. She wants someone who thinks like she does and she's a very unique thinker. And that's, I'm sure she can meet someone who thinks the way she does, who maybe isn't as attractive as she'd like, or who maybe doesn't earn as much money. Or there's, there's, she, I think she needs to be more flexible. I don't think it's that she, she has only fans. Interesting response. Now let's maybe abstract away from her then and just talk about the general question. Do you not think that being a star on OnlyFans has some kind of negative impact on your ability to find a good mate? Do you contest that? It just depends on what you mean by good. I'll be honest with you. I would not date or marry someone who would be cool with me having an OnlyFans. But that's just because of my own proclivities. I, I would, I'm not polyamorous. I, it doesn't work for me. I think I'm a little bit more conservative. I'm definitely more progressive than most people, but I'm a little bit more conservative than the most progressive people. It's, I think it's more of a preference thing and putting it into a binary of good and bad is strange. If I was a, if I was a conservative person who wanted to ask questions about this, I would say, these arrangements can exist, but is do they produce healthy societies? Do they produce healthy families? And those are the, I think that's more up for debate than can they exist at all? Sure. Yeah, you're right that my choice of words was bad. Good, A good relationship was, was dumb because that could mean any number of things and who knows. So probably what I had more in mind to make the conversation a bit more precise is just a mutually happy and long lasting marriage yeah definitely. yeah relationships again come in all different forms and people transcend their comfort levels to make things work a lot of the times so, uh, people leave religions they do all sorts of things sure yeah i think from what limited data i have just observationally on the world i think it would it's gonna have to be like if you're an only star and you're a woman and you want to get married and you want it to be and you want it to be happy and long-lasting it's almost certainly going to be either someone else in that industry or a related industry, I think. Or it's going to be someone with a significant power discrepancy in the relationship. And then the question becomes, can you be content for the long term with a man who is significantly less powerful than you in terms of the, the typical indicators, money, status, and place in, in the social hierarchy? So that to me is the puzzle. I think you can absolutely, someone like Ayla could absolutely do OnlyFans her entire life, make a killing, have a very successful, lucrative career doing OnlyFans for the rest of her life and find someone to marry and be happy. I just think it's going to be one of those two people. And then the question becomes, is she the type of person who can actually be happy with that? And I think that's that's open. That's only for, that's not for me to decide. I, I Part of me wants to believe that I think th- I think this argument makes it so how relationships work is more intelligible. But I I know a lot of people. It's just part of m- my brand, the way I navigate the world. I probably know ten times more people than the average person, <laughs> and because of that, I also know a lot of sex workers, and I know a lot of married sex workers. And who's to say what goes on behind closed doors? I'm not going to you know pretend like I'm an expert on my friends' marriages, sure. but thinking of four people off the top of my head there's software engineers who are are married to sex workers there you know are people who have way less power like you're describing it just it just comes in all different forms 
Mm. And I think it's what, I don't necessarily think all of these people would make great parents, but then that's not, it's not easy to judge it on that either. I think it's just, they're just people who are outside of the margins. And if that's who you like are authentically, and that's really what makes sense for you and how you navigate the world, that's great. I think the issue is most people shouldn't be in this position. I think for a select few, it makes a lot of sense and people make things work. It's just that when you try to scale it, then things start breaking down. So I'm not anti-sex work. I personally wouldn't do it. I don't think it's for me. I also think most people shouldn't do it because most people don't have the disposition for it. And I think the same thing applies with this relationship question. Relationships can thrive in any which environment. It's just are the right people involved in it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, for sure. You can always find really unique configurations that are stable and happy and good, even if they're completely off the typical correlations. So for sure, I totally buy that. And I, for what it's worth, I don't, I don't, I just don't judge. I try to practice an ethic of genuinely not judging other people, which is why I have certain, you know, ethical preferences or leanings. And I have a kind of somewhat culturally conservative just attitude or ethos that I, you can easily find in some of my comments on the world and my own theories and observations. But when it comes to other people, I'm, I don't judge. And I'm, I can genuinely say, I think Ayla's super interesting and, and, and funny and wild and happy to consider her uh, a friendly internet interlocutor. But having said that, I think, I just think that she was tweeting about this publicly, which is why I'm comfortable responding to it or talking about it. And I don't know. I just think that the, there are very few cases that I'm aware of that anyone I know can point to of people who are actively doing adult work on the internet and whether that be porn or OnlyFans, and then find a husband like outside of that world who they then go on to have a happy long running marriage with while they continue to do the thing. There's nothing like it's much more. I think it's quite common to give up the thing and, and then have a perfectly normal, happy, healthy marriage for the long run. That happens all the time for sure. But I don't know. I just don't know of many cases, but it sounds like some people like that. So that's interesting. Yeah, I can think of one woman and this surprised me. And I, I made some comments that I looking back and I'm probably a little offensive. A friend of a friend decided to like top 1% cam girl. She decided to take a break from camming to have a child and she was married and she went back to camming and the break was specifically a maternity leave and her relationship from what, you know, this friend has shared with me is fine and she leads a happy life and it's, there's a separation between her profession and her family life. I think most people can't do that, though. I certainly couldn't uh, have sex for money in any form, including camming, because for me, sex is tied to certain you know, types of relationships. I can never make that separation. And I think most people actually can't. And it's when you insist that everyone has the capacity to be casual about sex that you run into issues, because people will try to shoehorn themselves into that. And I think there's probably plenty of young women who are on OnlyFans who will deeply regret it and feel a lot of shame. And not because there's something inherently shameful about OnlyFans, but because they do not have the disposition, either naturally or how they were raised or what they authentically believe to be doing that kind of thing. And I think that's where the warnings should be that this is a specific lifestyle. And it's none of our business if other people are doing it, but think carefully if you are the person to do it. Yeah, but I agree with that. Now, Okay, so what about let's talk let's maybe shift gears a little bit. What about let's talk about Twitter because you're super active on Twitter. 
you seem to be really interested in the culture there and, and you're very active there. Do you, I'm curious, do you, who's, who's hot on Twitter right now that people might not know about? Are there interesting kind of new small accounts that you've noticed recently that you think you would buy their stock if it was available? I would buy Alex's stock. I actually don't, I talk to her off Twitter sometimes. I actually don't know how to pronounce her last name. Oh, Alex uh, Kashuda, I think it is. Yeah, uh, she's not a small, she like surpassed me in like the space of two weeks. But she's not a small, but if I could have bought stock in her like a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I would have. I think we're looking at another like Anna Kachian level account. <laughs> I think she was on Twitter for a while and then, but didn't really take it seriously. And then only recently she decided to start taking it seriously. And you're right. She's killing it now and growing super fast, I think. And she's, so she's interesting for people who don't know uh, who we're talking about this girl, Alex Kashuda. I actually met her a while back on the internet. I forget how we got connected, maybe through indie thinkers. Actually, I forget exactly, but basically She's a uh, Romanian and she married a guy, I think from New Zealand, if I'm remembering that correctly. In any event, they're doing the whole remote work thing. And she is a writer. She's She has a blog that she's written on a lot. And she's published, I think, in a few well-known third-party outlets. But basically, yeah, recently she's trying to attack the internet more aggressively. But she's very conservative, basically. She's a kind of anti-feminist, anti-woke She's pretty kind of Eastern European uh, woman is the vibe that she's representing. And it's interesting. She's got, I I like her. I think she's smart and uh, she's pretty provocative and aggressive on Twitter. And I agree with you. I would buy her stock also. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else who I would, I would actually invest money uh, in her account. (laughs) No one else recently has really, I I, I feel like I retweet her every day. I I agree with almost nothing she says, but I'm glad (laughs) she's bringing these things up because it gives me something to think about. And I think that she's framing these things and it's even unique for the audience that she's speaking to. You know, definitely conservative, but it's a new conservative voice. And even as someone who vehemently disagrees with her, I find it really interesting and valuable to think about. What I like about her and the type of thing that she represents is, and it has nothing to do with her particular positions or politics or philosophies, but what I love is this type of person, this kind of case study, how you can just basically decide to let's say, take your Twitter more seriously. And you just start tweeting more aggressively, right? You just start really putting in more time, really paying attention to what resonates with people, what doesn't resonate with people. And you can really just decide to make yourself a more influential public intellectual by simply just investing more time and effort into tweeting. And I I think it's cool watching her do that. And yeah, are there any other examples of small or new-ish Twitter accounts that you think are hot that uh, people might not know of? No, I, I don't think so. I feel like I've been mostly focusing on people I already know. And there's some smaller accounts that I really like, but they're locked accounts and I'm not gonna not gonna blow up their spot. <laughs> I've never but understood I, I, locked Twitter accounts. Like why? That what that sounds I just don't understand if it's locked and people can't retweet you, what's the fun? What's the motivation to even tweet? I think you're it's for a different purpose. Like you it's more one on one connections. But how do you even make a network when you're locked? But you reach out to people via DM. Or you don't really want to, maybe you don't want to make connections. You just want a place to put your thoughts. There's um, one account. Again, I won't say the name because I don't think he'd be comfortable with that. He has three followers. One of them is me. He reached out to me totally randomly and just started like, spamming me with DMs. But I was like, I'm going to read through these. They're actually really <laughs> interesting and astute. He is tweeting to nobody, but he's tweeting the most interesting stuff. And I love talking to him. And now anytime I... I have a take that maybe isn't safe for the TL or even my alt. I'll be like, hey, like, what do you think of this? 
And again, he's another person who I like 100% disagree with, but he has a really interesting way of, you know, thinking about the world. Interesting. That's cool. Because, yeah, I've never understood that. And I just can't relate to that temperamentally. But it sounds like there is a way to do that intelligently and develop good relationships and impress people and have connections. That's cool. Interesting. Now, you're also active right now on Substack. How are you finding Substack? Do you have takes on Substack? Yeah, I think I like Substack a lot. I think it's really easy to use and it's really easy to get your message out there with it because there's no part of it that's confusing or clunky. It's aesthetically, it's really simple, but it's really appealing. I do think it is, uh, it's having a little bit of a cultural moment though. I think part of the appeal is that it's, it's hip in the way that certain startups become hip. But the reason I feel like pretty comfortable saying it, it's great is because it, the actual product is really good. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a kind of popularity effect where I think when a bunch of big names are using something new, it gives a bunch of other people, they feel like more confident using it because it has the the approval factor of recognized names. So I think you're right. Something like that is going on with Substack. So you're enjoying it. That's cool. And how is it going? The growing a newsletter to give us an update on kind of the back end under the hood. How are you feeling and how's it going? I would love to get my advice newsletter off the ground more. There's, it has like a, an active, like core, like user base, like audience, maybe is the right word, who seem to really enjoy it, but they don't engage with it much on Substack or even on Twitter. But I get a lot of email feedback, which has been really valuable. And the people who like it really like it. I just want to figure out how to, how to expand that. Then I have an, another Substack, uh, which is just about how I love Mormons despite not being Mormon. And that one had a runaway success overnight and then petered out, I think, because I'm, I'm not as active with it as I am with the advice one. But that's mm. another one where it's the core audience. It's doing its thing for them. And I have people who are emailing me and in my DMs and are clearly really enjoying it or just think it's super weird and can't look away. But yeah, how to, again, how to scale is always something I struggle with. And I think it's because I never really take a position. I see. Have you found that some of your newsletters have gotten more traction than others? And what are the defining characteristics of the ones that got the most traction? It's kind of, it's hit or miss. There is one uh, that I always thought of it as one of the worst ones I've ever written called Welcome to the World of Tomorrow about how the COVID world isn't going to change anytime soon. And that one did really well. And it was shared a lot and it has the most page views. But yeah, I don't know why that, I don't think the writing was particularly good. I can't even remember what the second topic is because I usually go through a couple of questions instead of just focusing on one. Yeah, I, I don't, it's not the one I'm most proud of though, or that is even the most interesting in my opinion. But was there some characteristic about it you think that is causing that success? I, I have no idea. I, I don't know why that one's the one that caught on. Interesting. Now, here's a different question for you. Since you specialize in the middle of the Venn diagram between internet culture and dating, I'm curious, do you think that an average incel, a kind of completely isolated young man who has no access to the dating market or has no, or let's just say he sees himself as having pretty much no access, no chance at at finding a girlfriend through any reasonable, normal, traditional means, do you think it's possible for him to develop a sophisticated and impressive, thoughtful Twitter account? And then by doing that, after he grows that a little bit and has this kind of demonstrated internet personality that's smart and charming, if he were able to cultivate that, 
Do you think he could then slide into girls' DMs and have luck finding a girlfriend? Maybe. I think it's really case by case. I also think it depends on what you mean by incel. If he's really blackpilled and suspicious of women, and I'm very careful not to dismiss that feeling or dismiss people, even though I am very against misogyny and understand how people can get to that point of desperation. I don't think so. If you just mean incel in the sense that he just lives in a weird place and there isn't much of a community he can tap into, it depends on what he looks like. There's so many factors. For some people, I, I know one person who did this and it worked out for him, but who's to say that it's I think it's repeatable, but it, I think it, it's very dependent on who that person is. Sure. Yeah. And I don't mean incel in the kind of horror movie sense in the way that they're demonized. I don't mean necessarily misogynistic at all. I don't mean any of the. Honestly, I think the incel class is one of the most unfairly stigmatized and slurred classes because all I meant by incel was just young guys who can't get laid pretty much. Um, sure. And when I, when I say uh, skeptical of women, to me, I find a lot of their offensive a lot of their rhetoric offensive, but I think that's what it is. It's a skepticism of a class of people who they believe are holding back happiness for them and who they feel hurt by. And I think that I understand how people get there. I don't think these people are are evil. I think they're coming from a place of pain. And in some cases, there is no hope for them. And it's a really complicated thing to talk about. So I always want to be careful that I'm compassionate to what they're experiencing. I also don't want to pretend to be the expert on solutions like because i'm certainly not it's you know not my my place um sure yeah but what about your friend who was able to pull it off what's his play what was the playbook there break that down yeah so he just has he has a popular twitter account he's a really smart dude i actually think he's a weird situation where he's good looking but doesn't have a great job and also i don't think is interfacing with enough women and is in real life and is um shy and Mm -hmm. I I think dating apps really only serve the top 10% of men. So there's a lot of things working against him. But his Twitter persona is really great. And he's, that's how he meets women. And it's going pretty well for him. And I think he, he identified as an incel for a little bit. That's cool. Because I've always, I've always hypothesized that is possible. When you look at young men who are fit the mold of what society would label incel, often they're not actually that bad looking. And they're often quite smart enough. And I'm often thinking to myself, if they just got a haircut, showered a little more, started working out and just applied themselves to reading wholesome books and writing blog posts and killer tweets, and they just cultivated themselves online, even if in their own social networks and in real life, their IRL networks, they were seen as losers or whatever. I I do want to think actually that they could cultivate themselves online and get chicks. So that's yeah, good I, to know that there's at least one case of that happening. I've, I've never heard of it, but I would like to find more cases of that because I suspect it's real. And I would like to spread that kind of pathway because I feel it's underutilized. There's, I think there's such a thing as being verbally hot. I think there's a lot of Twitter accounts where they would not shine in real life, but have even carved out real careers for themselves because they're, they have verbal charisma. So who's a verbally hot guy that you know of? And then a, <laughs> I don't want to, ver- I'm like, and then a verbally hot chick. Definitely thinking of accounts. I, I don't feel comfortable naming <laughs> any, but I think, I think they exist. I, I think for men, they tend to be some of the larger edgelord or conservative accounts, especially when they can communicate about complicated issues 
intelligently, even if it's not, even if their positions aren't ones that are very agreeable or like things that people would want to agree with. And I think there's also something to having clout anywhere that attracts people, men and women. Mm -hmm. Now say more about, this is interesting, what you said about how the, it's the conservative edgelord accounts that you often see as verbally hot. I think there's probably something there in that. I, I do think there's this thing, you can tell me if you agree or disagree, but where a lot of women, especially today in feminist culture will say that they want X, Y, and Z. And these are often liberal, sweetheart, beta male traits. And then actually underneath the surface, what they really want is a kind of aggressive, authoritarian, almost fascist, conservative, tough guy. And it's just shameful to want that. And no one wants to say it. And I wonder, is is there maybe a trace of that in what you're saying? And that a really articulate, super conservative edgelord that's actually sexy on the internet in a weird way today because it's so prohibited? I think that's definitely part of it. I think also women are attracted to power and expertise and status. The more left-leaning accounts, with some notable exceptions, tend to be a little bit pandering. And I right. think if you're if you're neoliberal or leftist, you're being super clear, these are two very different things, and you're you're confident in your position, and you're not pandering to anyone, and you're not self-flagellating, then I think you could also have this effect that the more right-wing edgelords do. I think the right-wing edgelords are attractive, not only because every woman wants a fascist, as it were, but because they don't give a fuck, they seemingly don't give a fuck about what you think, and they're going to confidently assert their opinion, and they're going to do it aggressively. And I, I think that's one of the the bedrocks of charisma. Yeah, I've definitely, I think that's basically right. Although I've definitely met, I wonder if you have too, I've met some of these right-wing edgelords offline. Like I, like you, I've met a lot of people through Twitter and I've actually hung out with various different meetup groups and stuff like that, that formed on Twitter. And some of these kind of edgelord right-wing men, they get a little carried away in their self-perceived sex appeal to the point that in real life, they actually are a little, they trouble me in their um, aggression towards women and their pushy, let's say, I don't want to use words indiscreetly here, but let's just say, yeah, aggressive is a good word. Aggressive, uh, a bit pushy, maybe even gropey. So yeah, in a weird way, people see me as a reactionary or whatever. People like to call me all kinds of weird names, but I'm not at all. But the irony is that I actually do think that the sex appeal of being a right-wing edgelord is actually... It actually is a real danger. Like it can, it does sometimes lead to genuinely nasty, indefensible types of behaviors so if you really cultivate it too far. And yeah, so the irony is I actually think online, truly reactionary online edgelording is in a weird way more dangerous than the lefty critics think it is because they just want to basically punish and stigmatize the little words on the Twitter screen. Whereas my attitude is let them have their little words on the Twitter screen. Everyone should be allowed to have that. I don't really care what people say on the internet, but actually it's the lifestyle that they're cultivating in the background. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I don't think it's necessarily specific to right-wingers. I think what happens there is they could be more blatant in the labeling and then they might have the vehicle of certain philosophies to justify actions that are just just total bullshit or further extremes than that. But I'm sure you're familiar with this. Anytime someone gets power in a scene, they be, there's a chance that they're going to become a dick. There's a reason why, you know, after the fact that 
people in alt lit or emo music or hard hardcore scenes they get called out after the fact, right? It's just status that's doing this. It's less the the being right wing or reactionary. Now you said before that you're super into the Mormons. I would love to know a thing or two about what did Joseph Smith know that I should know in order to build a significant, cohesive world historical community? That's a great question. Geez, I <clears throat> I don't really have an answer for why Mormonism caught on the way that it did. I have some theories. I think... Give us theories. Um, yeah. All right. So I, I think, and this is what attracts me to it. Conversion is the norm. It's fine. It doesn't matter who you were before. Once you're in, you're all in. And I think this is important. So you have a path towards absolution and salvation, but it's not wishy-washy once you're in. Once you commit, it's similar to what you've said about marriage. You, your lifestyle changes. They have a cohesive culture that's visible from the outside. Mormons talk a certain way. They look a certain way. They dress a certain way. They form families a certain way. They, when someone's Mormon and when someone is in that community, they have a community at all. It's to me, it's the closest possible thing to converting to a nationality. And I think a lot of people are hungry for an identity that's already set up for them without having to do too much on their own. And the journey towards conversion is very thrilling. I've been on, I actually almost was baptized in recent history. So I've felt it. A good missionary is really a really talented salesperson. And if you think you feel it, you, it's, exhilarating it's you feel high so they it's they they do a pretty good job with onboarding i'll say that do they yeah nice do they have twitter game mormons are there well-known impressive charismatic mormon tweeters who are constantly riffing hot shit i don't i'm not too in that community i know a lot of tech people who are mormon their identities aren't necessarily built around that i've been afraid to get too into Mormon Twitter just because I want to keep my newsletter friendly for Mormons, even though it's more directed towards ex-Mormons, if anyone. But I tweet too much about defending Ayla, pretty much. And I, <laughs> I put some time between the Mormon tweets and the, the sex work tweets before <laughs> I allowed it to be any crossover. So since you love the Mormons so much, why don't you become one? Is it just because of your other beliefs that don't really fit? I don't totally buy into it is the first thing. I, I think they're pretty ahistorical. I think their theology is valuable. But the other thing is, I, I like to have a non-judgmental approach. And I don't want to develop a complex about things I've already done, because I'm converting to a faith that I didn't grow up with. And then also, I'm dating a Jewish person. And I feel it would be weird to be like, hey, I'm Mormon now. So you better join me on this journey. Or maybe this relationship right. isn't long for this earth. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard that's a hard one to break to the BF. Yeah. Do I know your Do I know your boyfriend? No, he's not a Twitter uh, person. <laughs> okay, you mean you didn't find this one on Twitter? How How did you find them then? <laughs> <laughs> I know the the million dollar question. Um, someone like dared me to use a dating app and told me that I was totally wrong about dating apps, and they were right. I was it did actually work for me. <laughs> So that's, yeah, I had to make an embarrassing backpedal, like, all right, my articles and my articles true in theory, but perhaps not always a practice. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. We have, we are coming up on an hour now. I think that we covered a lot of ground and this was fun. 
we could also keep talking about any random things if you want, but this more or less exhausts what I had in store for us. So up to you if you want to go into a wild random uh, banter zone or if you want to call it a night. We can banter, banter a little bit about your matchmaking idea, but that's, Ooh, that's yeah. I guess, the last thing I have. Let's banter. What do you think of it? I think it's a great idea. Should I, should I? Okay, let me recapitulate to people in case they're not with this. I recently wrote a thread on Twitter about marriage. It got a fair bit of traction and was quite polarizing, which is always fun. And that actually got me a thousand new Twitter followers. So for someone who only had 15, that's a lot, 15,000. That's a good percentage. So yeah, that definitely hit a nerve basically. And yeah, I basically just tweeted some of my thoughts on marriage and specifically around how I think young men wait too long, um, especially when they're dating someone for a long time. That was the particular case that I was really speaking to because I know people my age or in my age bracket, let's say, who have been living with their girlfriend for five years or something like that. And they have a good relationship and they're just not getting married. And I'm like, dude, just do it. It's awesome. Do it. And so that was roughly what I had in mind, but I definitely went a little bit broad, broader than that and probably a little bit more aggressive and provocative than need be. But hey, it's Twitter. What can I say? It brings out the best in me or the worst, depending on how you see it. In any event, that led to a secondary thought, which I had, which was that I bet you could actually build a startup where you arrange marriages, but for Westerners. And I might not have been the first one to invent that. I'm sure someone some point had that idea or tried that or talked about that. So I'm definitely not saying I'm literally the first person to ever think of it. But I did some basic Googling and I couldn't find anyone who tried that or even talked about that. And I just tweeted it randomly because the thought to me was, it seemed clear from the, the responses to my tweet that there's a lot of people who are tired of overthinking it and they know that they're overthinking it. And the problem for Westerners is, is that we overthink everything and we can overthink ourselves into actual oblivion where we're not actually doing anything because we're just what they call analysis paralysis. That's such a good phrase. It's so true. It happens in many different domains of you know human life today. In any event, I had this thesis for that reason that I think a lot of people just want or need someone somewhere to force them out of that because they can't do it themselves, especially when it comes to marriage, because people are afraid of commitment. They don't know how to choose. And my whole take on it is that marriage is essentially a faith-based proposition. If you're trying to approach it through a truly, absolutely rational lens, then you're never going to get married because it's never quite sensible from a rational perspective, I believe. It only really works on what is ultimately a kind of leap of faith. and if you do it and you go all in, it actually leads to surprisingly powerful mechanisms that start taking hold in a way that you didn't even necessarily plan for, but that are powerful and awesome and that make the leap of faith work and make it actually w become something real and stable and beautiful that you couldn't have even predicted necessarily. And so with that as my theory that I presented, a lot of people were DMing me. I so agree. You're so right. How do I get out of it? And asking me for advice and stuff like that. And yeah, that's basically the background just for people listening. And I think what a lot of Westerners need is they just need someone, some service, marriage as a service. <laughs> you just basically say you want to get married and then some broker uh, matches you with someone else in their database who wants to get married and you don't evaluate each other. You literally just marry each other without thinking about it. And you just, you just hope for the best. <laughs> so that's the basic idea. And I actually think this could work from a business perspective. I think you, all you would need to do is take a, a bunch of people who sign up for the service. It could be a totally free sign up form or whatever. Uh, the key would be to have a, a scientifically sensible intake survey where everyone has to basically 
answer a series of questions. And those can't just be questions that you make up because you think that they're good for marriage, but that would have to be validated through all the research we have on dating and marriage and outcomes. And I have a pretty good sense of what those variables would be. So you just make that entrance survey. Then let's say you just get a bunch of people to enter who are genuinely interested in arranged marriage. And I can show you in my DMs, there are actually a lot of people who are seriously interested in an arranged marriage. And then you run the stats on the on that data set and you find the pairings that have the highest likelihood of resulting in happy, lasting marriages. And then you just send the messages at each of those people and you're like, okay, here's some basic data about this person we're matching you with. We think according to our model, there's a 75% chance you're gonna have a happy, long-lasting marriage with this person. If you want me to put you in touch with them, pay me $25,000 or something big like that because it's literally one of the most priceless things you could give someone if you're actually gonna give them a, a happy marriage. So I think it's actually a huge opportunity. I'm super serious about it. I'm busy. I don't know that I'm going to be the one to build it right now, but if anyone else wants to hit me up, I've talked to a few other people who might want to build it. So that's the pitch. That's the idea. And what are your takes on that default? Full disclosure, I connected with someone on Indie Thinkers about trying to build it out. <laughs> yes. Um, so we're talking about it. I think it's a great idea because I think people want, at the, especially at this point, for other people to just make choices for them. Yes. I don't think I think if the climate was any different, that wouldn't be the case. But I think right now we're in a cultural moment where people just are so fatigued with the dating scene and so unwilling to settle that if someone just says, this is the girl you got to marry, they'll do it. So with, I say that with a little bit of a caveat. I think what you're going to see is a lot of people who are really excited about the novelty or who are really excited about this choice being out of their hands and a lot of two, three month long relationships. and then people who either get cold feet or divorce. So I think there's, I don't think it'll ever wear out and people won't, people will stop trying it, but I don't necessarily think that it will produce as many long lasting marriages as, you know, one might hope. I think it'll be one of these things where people are excited about giving it a shot, but ultimately in practice, not everyone, like they want someone to make a choice for them. Do they want to commit to that choice? There's going to be a lot of second thoughts about that, uh, well, especially for right. women. So you mean at the moment of decision right before actually falling through on the marriage, do you think that's going to be the the failure mode if there is one? Yeah, or they will get married and then it'll be like people who are getting really dumbass stick and poke tattoos in 2008. Two months later, they're like, fuck, I was on a lot of whippets <laughs> and they try to yeah. hit escape, but that's fine. I think they fuck it. There's going to be people who stay together forever and there's going to be a lot of divorce, but I think the process will be refined and eventually it'll probably become self-selecting and it could become a really cool cult thing. I think I have more faith in the social science aspect. I think if there isn't, if you can get enough data and I haven't actually looked into this research yet closely, but I do believe there's some good research on the predictors of successful marital outcomes. And so that's one thing is if you can get the basic model from what we currently know about these predictors, I think that's pretty promising. I would trust that if you could do that, if you could do the statistical models correctly. And I know that I could, that's one thing. But even if those are inadequate and maybe in the first a hundred or a thousand arranged marriages, maybe the success rate is not as great as you'd hope it would be. The thing is, once you start having that novel data set that you're collecting yourself, that's where things could totally be changed for the better because yeah, just data at scale, basically. So if it, if this would have to be in the long term, a data play also where 
you have this from doing this over time, you have this in-house data set of what predicts successful and failed marriages. And then with that, you're just constantly iterating on the statistical model that's doing the, the arrangements. So even if someone buys your critique or someone else has their own critique of how this would never work, pretty much even still, if you could just get to a thousand arranged marriages at that point, then even if the first 1,000 were not very good, it could suddenly click into this really high accuracy inflection point where all of a sudden, all of your marriages uh, last forever because you've gotten the predictors down. I think what this is missing two things that happen in practice, though, and I've even done this myself. You're dating someone and they're perfect on paper. You guys never fight, but you're just not sure for some reason that's really internal and you walk away from it. And it's all on you. And that other person did nothing wrong. And you probably could have stayed with them and it would have been right. And then the second iteration on that is everyone has a friend or has experienced it themselves. They have this perfect partner who, and they're having fun together and everything's good. And they even have a healthy sex life, but that person just doesn't like the way they smell. Like there's some instinctive gut level reaction where they don't want to spend their lives with this person. And I think you can't, data can only go so far. And that's what my trepidation about dating apps always was too, besides the way it sets up relationship forming. It's there's these things that you can't possibly account for that have nothing to do with looks, have nothing to do with income, have nothing to do with anything. It's just your reaction to someone and it's hard to quantify. So the second point I would take issue with, I don't think that's real. I think that's I think that's a kind of neoliberal illusion. I think it's common. You're right that it's common. It definitely happens. But I think it only happens because people aren't able to go all in and have this kind of deeply faith-based love that I tried to characterize in my Twitter thread. So what I mean by this is that like what you basically said, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing you, but I, I heard you saying that it can happen in a long-term relationship that things just evolve. And at a certain point, you just really don't like some specific thing about them. How they smell was the example that you gave. And I just don't think that happens in truly deeply committed marriages. Do you so think no, I'm wrong? I, I definitely could be wrong, but what do you think? You're wrong at the point at which it happens. It doesn't happen. It's not going to happen in like a two-year-long relationship. But I think you could be dating someone for two, three months who is great. And then as things get more serious... It's not that you don't like the way they smile or something. It's like it's visceral. Like you don't connect with them on this level that I think has a lot to do with scent. Like a physical sort of spark isn't there. And mm -hmm. it could happen between like, two very good looking people or, you know, two people who should make sense, but just don't. And that's where the, the whole mediated relationship thing I, I have questions about. Maybe it is rare. I just, I do think it's something that, is, is real. And I, I've experienced it dating people for a short amount of time and things are going well. No complaints. They have no complaints about me. But it's just we don't have this chemistry that I can't really explain. And it's often it's often mutual. And I feel a lot of people ignore this too. And they trudge forward. And then at some point, like you just they you just crave that. And it's, if it's not there, it's not there. Right. Yeah. So you could be right. My thesis would be, I do tend to think that take this sort of relationship pattern that you're describing where someone gets together, maybe they're dating for six months or something like that. And up until then, everything's great. Everything's fine. No complaints, a lot of happiness on both sides. But then let's say at the six month mark, they just start to little things irk each other. And it just the chemistry in your words 
dies but out. But the little my, things irking, the little things irking you, that can totally be overcome. So my, I've been married before, and it, there is a, a few really big things that I won't burden this podcast with that led to the end of my marriage. But me and my husband on paper did not make sense at all. But we overcame a lot for each other. And I think were it not for a couple of really key important things, we would have stayed together. We were together for six years. And my God, there was things about him that annoyed the shit out of me. But those those things, I believe you can transcend easily. But so the specific things you think can't be transcended are what exactly? I, I don't think you can... Tra- me and my, hus- my, me and my ex-husband did not work as a married couple. But like that doesn't change that we had chemistry physical chemistry, and we loved each other very deeply. But I think there's some people that you cannot love for reasons that might not even make sense to you. And it's really hard to quantify, and I can't quite figure out what it is, but it's something that I've experienced, and it's something I've seen other people experience. And maybe that that doesn't necessarily mean they can't be married, though, I think is maybe a, a broader point. Maybe... Maybe it's just, how are you thinking about marriage? I'm sure people in that situation could form a great partnership. I would just imagine that you would, knowing that you could have a deeper love with someone else might be a a stopping point. I think love also develops over time, but I do think very early on, you know, whether or not you're capable of going all in with this person. And I don't know if that distinction is clear enough. You just made a really good point, which is a point that I made in my Twitter thread, which is that it's that prospect of a possible other option that is crucial here. And that's something you just basically alluded to. And you said that the thought of being happier with someone else is a very powerful thing that can really disrupt like a bond. And so one of the big points I made was that like you, I think to get married, you have to, if you're going to really do it right, you have to, of course it might come, it might, the day might come when some, for some reason you split and that's fine. I would never judge that, but psychologically you should, if you want to succeed in a marriage to increase your chances of doing that, you should try at the beginning, like to really have a mindset of, there is no exit. This will never end no matter what. I'll never allow it to end and hold on to that as tight as you can. If you can't, that's fine. But like, you should try to basically really tie your hands and see it as absolutely sealed with no exit. Because I do think that it's that desire for like better that is one of the big killers. And yeah, the other, I think the other thing here that is important to talk about, and if, it, if this was like Justin Murphy's arranged marriage agency and I was like completely in control, this is something I'd maybe do in like stage two or something like that. But this is where it gets a little bit like dicier and a little bit more controversial. But you'd want to engineer some kind of like very severe draconian punishment for a divorce. And not because you want to do harm to people, but because you want to allow people to access that kind of like deep existential state of there is no alternative to this. This is just who I am now. And I think that's what like reactionary draconian kind of Catholic Um, divorce norms through history. That's why they were there. That's why there was so much stigma against divorce is because marriage is really freaking hard. And if there aren't severe costs, like people are going to split and families are going to break up and people are going to be constantly thinking about what they can get that's better than their partner. And ultimately that might make a certain type of person happy. Sure. Maybe you can go find a better partner and all the power to you. If that's, if you're listening to this and that's like who you are, not judging that in the slightest, but for a lot of people, the drive or the pull to get something better is actually going to make them just unable to really go deep on the 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 potentially like eternal existential bond that marriage is uh, able to represent if you're really able to l- click into that like there is no exit kind of mentality. That was my argument in 
in my Twitter thread. So that's my other take well, here is that I think. I sort yeah. of agree with you. I think there's two different kinds of looking for better though, which I even have, I even struggle to articulate it myself. Again, sure. like I don't want to get too personal, but like when I was married, I knew that in some sense I could probably be with a higher earner or someone who like looked a different way, but it felt like there was this like impenetrable like connection that we had. And what broke it was like external things that had more to, to do with circumstances that like couldn't be overcome in our specific situation. But then like I've like definitely dated people where I can do better has nothing to do with there's a better option in terms of like appearance or finances or lifestyle. It's like the connection piece isn't there. I've had deep connections with people from all walks of life and like things haven't worked out for different reasons. But like I could have pictured the the relationship having longevity and the reason it didn't had nothing to do with I'm looking for better. On the flip side, I think there's people who are constantly looking for hotter, wealthier, more accomplished, and they're throwing away opportunities that can be cultivated and can become beautiful, lifelong, in, in some cases, marriages. But it's a hard it's a hard thing to dis- to distinguish. Like how do you know when one's one's not the other. I don't quite know how to describe it, even in my own experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, these are all questions that are ultimately very existential leaps of faith, whether you're entering a marriage or exiting one. These are the kinds of things where people can write, I think, powerfully and importantly from their own experiences. And but you can't, these are all things that like people just have to figure out for themselves. And these ultimately very personal individual leaps of faith, I think. I have a very Kierkegaardian kind of attitude towards that. And yeah, but this, but yeah, no, you definitely balance out my takes a little bit. So I appreciate that. And I hope you and the other people in Indie Thinkers who want to work on this can actually put this together because I I seriously think it it could work at the arranged marriage agency. It's really cool. I'm excited to talk to Raven more about it and I'll keep people up to date. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. I don't want to keep you too long. Was there anything else on your mind or marriage wise or, or otherwise? No, I think that's it. It was great to chat with you. Yes. Everyone listening to this, go subscribe to defaultfriend.substack.com. Uh, default is cool and chill, as you can see from this podcast, and she'll give you good advice if you ask for it. Are there particular topics that you want to especially encourage people to uh, submit to you or what? Just ask whatever's on your mind and I'll do my best to answer it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there. So check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. See you here next time.